from Simon before we start. I had the wrong mic on for the first few minutes, so it'll sound a bit weird, but that's only for the introduction. And then back to the normal mic. So, um, sorry about that, but thanks for listening. See you in the past, in the future, in the present. I don't quite know how that works. Aptly for an episode on time in a minute. Hello, welcome to episode 114 of Tea or Books. My name is Simon. I'm Rachel. In the first half of today's episode, we're doing a topic suggested by Sarah. Thank you, Sarah, which is linear versus non-linear narratives. Uh, a topic, such a good idea. It seems like we should have done it, but I don't think we have. Uh, in the second half, a novel by Elizabeth Bowen called A World of Love and a collection of short stories by Sylvia Townsend Warner, Winter in the Air. But before we do that, Rachel, how are you? What are you reading? Um, I'm very well, thank you. Um, I'm excited that we are almost, well, it's probably spring. Um, the blossoms starting to come out in London. And um, even though the weather's been pretty grey, I feel like we're turning a corner. So I'm feeling quite positive. Um, and yeah, I've just read a really good book, actually. Um, and I feel a bit bad sort of saying how good it is because it is, like many things both of us read, very much out of print. Um, but that but copies are available online. So I don't um, know if listeners will remember, we've talked about Helen Ashton before. She's a Persephone novelist. She wrote Bricks and Mortar, for uh, which has been republished by Persephone about the life of an architect. And um, I happened to find on eBay the other day uh, another novel by hers that I've been looking for for quite some time, um, which is called The Captain Comes Home. And sets it was written in 1947 and it's set during the the latter part of, of the second world war and it's it's the rather improbable story of uh but it works within the context of the novel of a man called johnny who is fighting in greece and he gets left behind when um there's a sort of i don't know i can't remember the term for it but embarkment when people are taken off a boat uh, off off beaches and and rescued um and he gets left behind and he gets found by local Greek people and taken to a, to an island. And um, he ends up stuck there for three or four years. And he's, you know, not in his right mind by the end of it. And he's too afraid to leave, essentially. And, and the Greek uh, locals are too afraid to take him off the island in case they get discovered and get captured by the Germans, etc. So anyway, an improbable coincidence happens at the beginning of the novel, whereby two people who happen to be from this soldier's hometown um, and two two army people, uh, one of them is a major and one of them is something else, happen to ship up in this tiny Greek town and hear this legend of um, an English soldier who's stuck on an island and they think, that sounds like someone we know. And they go over on a boat and, and they find out that it indeed is him. And the rest of the novel is taken up with what happens when he gets home because he, he was married and he was assumed dead. He was confirmed dead by the the military, and um, his wife has married again. And what happens when you know somebody comes home and life is not what they thought it was going to be? And there's a big um, sort of court case about it. And it's it sounds a bit bizarre, but it, it's actually a really wonderful book and also a really interesting insight into life on the home front in the latter part of World War II, I really enjoyed the the kind of the details about the domestic life and the way that things had changed and what people had to do differently. And um, I think you'd like it a lot, Simon. Um, 
So, and she just writes so beautifully. And as in all of her other novels, she's she's got a particular interest in describing domestic architecture, domestic interiors, um, but also very good at describing women's lives and um, relationships between parents and children and so on. So um, I really enjoyed it. And apparently it's part of a loose trilogy. Um, So now I've got to try and track down the other two. Uh, is it the first of the trilogy? It's the last one. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I see. Um, yeah, the others are, are also about world war life, um, sort of life during the war, but on the home front in the same village, but with different characters. Yeah, it sounds very like Miss Ranskill Comes Home. Yes, in a way, yeah. 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 Being thought dead on an island and then coming back to war, but, uh, which I mean, yeah, sounds great. Gosh, um, no, I hadn't thought of that, but you know, you're exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. one came first? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, I think we did. Miss Ransom comes home from the podcast yes, years ago. Yes, yeah. we did. Yeah, so um, highly um, recommended, and I would also recommend if people find a novel by her, you know, do pick it up because everything I've read by her has been very good. Yeah, I, um, I think I've only read those two so far, but I do have Return to Cheltenham, which I bought, I think, maybe coming up 20 years ago. So, <laughs> my time for read. Yeah. Um, I have also got a recommendation for you, which I read recently and I think you'd love, which is Babacombs by Susan Scarlett, oh. which is uh, the pen name of Noel Stretfeld when she was writing under slightly lighter type of novel than than the, the novels that um she wrote in her own name uh, so it's very predictable it's about this young woman who gets a job in a department store uh, working in gowns and mm-hmm. she happens at one point to be stuck in a lift with a young man who happens it turns out to be the son of the owner well what and, are the chances yes so what are the chances but she takes no nonsense and he's he admires that she's the first woman who's ever stood up to him um, will they fall in love? I, I don't know. <laughs> they, def- they definitely will. Uh, but it's it's got lovely period detail about working in the department store that I found fascinating. Uh, and it's, yeah, if you're in the mood for something entirely predictable and really fun, then uh, definitely recommend that. It's be- been reprinted by Furrowed Middlebrow series from Fiend Street Press. It sounds delightful, uh, just the sort of yeah. thing that Years and years ago, somebody, and I forget who it was, recommended that we compare Babacombs and High Wages by Dorothy oh, Whipple. Yes. At that point, Babacombs was absolutely impossible to find, so so we didn't, but um, maybe we could now sometime. Yeah. Uh, I'm also just reading um, Free Air by Sinclair Lewis that I'm really enjoying. And I haven't read him before. He's most famous for Babbitt and Main Street, I think. But um, this one is a bit... I've not read those, but I believe it's different from those in that it's, again, a bit lighter. It's it's described as a romantic, romance adventure, adventure romance, but it's, it's really just a road trip across America in the late 1910s. And uh, there's romance along the way, but it's also fascinating about how one drove a car across America when cars basically fell apart at the drop of a hat. Uh, there's a lot of that class in there. You don't often think about the American novels as being as much about class as, as that period of English novels, but this, uh, yeah, it's very much about what happens when um, a mechanic and uh, of a middle-class woman fall in love and whether or not uh, that's something that they can pursue. Which, yeah, I'm really enjoying. Sounds very good. I've just started a new book today, um, which is Spiderweb by Penelope Lively. And 
Um, not quite sure where it's going yet, but I'm I'm quite enjoying it. It's about a retired social anthropologist who um, is is just move, moves to Somerset and experiencing there's a very odd family that live down the lane and a, a strange relationship with um, the husband of a former friend who's, who's died. And I'm not quite sure what's going to happen, but I feel like something bad's going to happen. So I'm intrigued <laughs> to see where it goes. I just love how easy to read her books are. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. nice. Mm. Um, um so yes, in the first half of today's episode, thank you, Sarah, for suggesting linear versus linear, sorry, no, linear versus non-linear narratives, basically narratives that are told in chronological order versus those that aren't. And we've done, I think we've done episodes on books with multiple perspectives, all that sort of thing. This is a bit different. So it can have multiple perspectives, or we might just have one, but we'll be looking at um, things that are told in weird orders, things that have done with, yeah, I guess... There's all sorts of things that people have done playing around with time and it'd be interesting to hear some of the ones we like and don't like. Um, what comes to mind first? I think I can guess, actually. Oh, you tell me what you think I'm going to say. I think you're going to talk about life after life. Well, you know, call me predictable, but yes, I was. <laughs> um, I love how well you know me. <laughs> one of my favourite books. And I think it is a very um, interesting example of how that can work because sometimes I think it can be, it can feel gimmicky or it can just be downright confusing. But in, in this case, for me, having that constant repetition of, of time. Do you want to explain, for those who haven't read it, uh, what does happen, how it works? Yeah, I was just about to do that. Sorry. Oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry, Rachel. Um, so the book is about a woman called Ursula who every time she dies she's reborn and her life goes off on a on a different tangent. So in the book uh, when it starts I think she's sort of born five times before she actually survives the birth and each time you you read up to the point where she dies and then you go back again and you see a slightly different version and people doing something slightly differently which means that she does survive and then that continues throughout her childhood and her adulthood we have these moments where um you know she's doing something and then something bad happens and then we get to restart again and see how things would be done differently so you're constantly reliving her life and going back in time with her but the novel actually opens in the middle with um her shooting hitler um and then we sort of then launch back into her as a child and we're sort of wondering from the beginning you know when are we going to see that moment again what will happen is that going to be the life that she actually has or is that going to be an alternate life and I just think it's absolutely marvellous. And it's also a great way to write lots of different stories for a character if you can't decide how you want uh, their life to be. I thought that <laughs> Kate Atkinson must have really enjoyed doing that. Um, and we did do an episode on it a while ago. Yes. Uh, am I just as predictable? Can you work out which one I want to talk about first? Mm. I'm not going to be as good at guessing this. Um <laughs> Well, As a clue, it's a British Library Women Writers title. Ah. Well, normally you find any excuse to talk about Miss Hargroves, but I don't think that's got a non-linear <laughs> Yeah, that would be tricky. Yeah, well, you say which one? It's Which Way by Theodora Benson. Yeah, I haven't read that one yet. Yeah, it's a fun one. It's, um, it's a sort of sliding doors narrative. For, uh, I'm sure everyone knows what that means, but just in case, it's about how 
uh, things would be different if if different decision had been made at one point. So the the heroine, I think it's called Claudia, um, gets three invitations to a weekend away, and uh, that happens at the end of the first very short section of the novel. Uh, and then the next three sections are about what would have happened had she accepted the three different invitations and it goes for the next few years after that each of those invitations took her off on quite different and pretty unpredictable paths uh, and so it, it each section is chronological and it doesn't go back and forth between them it tells you all of one section and then all of the next section and then all of the third so it, the, the thing it does with time that's different is that it jumps back to that point mm. again and then tells a story again from then on and uh, that that sort of conceit I think I've mentioned in the previous episode but I read um, the versions of us by Laura Barnett where she does a similar thing um but in that case she mingles between the three and it goes on for several years and I found it impossibly confusing because the same characters were in all three and I had no idea where it was and it it didn't work at all for me but I I do get confused about these things and a rather earlier version than either of those in fact a little bit earlier than which way is Dangerous Corner by J.B. Priestley a play I watched a film of the other day it's on YouTube a film from I think the early 30s uh, which has the same idea, I guess, but only happens right at the end, where basically there's this whole play about all these secrets and things coming out and the tangles that you'll get in and really, I guess, horrific chaos. And then the final scene is one conversation that they had if it had gone slightly different way. I think it's they needed to, whether or not they needed to re- replace a bit of a record player. Uh, and if they didn't need to, then none of those secrets would have been exposed. And so it just has one scene at the end of like, this is what almost happened. So yeah, those are fun ways of, I guess there's some more to do with a uh, chance and that sort of thing. But, but the way it plays out is with a strange uh, moment or, or several moments of non-linearity. Yes. Um, I think that works quite well in plays actually often. I mean, one of my favorite plays is a contemporary play. Uh, well, I say contemporary, it's probably about 20 years old now, but um <laughs> in the early 2000s feel like yesterday to me so um it's like it's called constellations by nick payne and it's it's written without any stage directions and it's very little um information about where we are but it's an experiment in looking at quantum physics i mean the playwright's very clever and you know he's lining up himself if i'm honest but um (laughs) the the conceit is that each seen there sort of in a different universe so you see the same conversation happening and each time the conversation goes in a different way and and it ends up by them saying something different each time gradually they develop a relationship and so on and so forth but only in one sort of timeline in another timeline the same conversation takes them down a different route and it's really interesting to kind of um be jumping around the whole time because in one one sort of vein of the play they're they're together and they're married and whatever and another bit they're strangers and it's um yeah it's just really interesting to think it's kind of the same conceit as as life after life thinking about Mm, mm, mm. just do one thing differently or you said one thing differently or you turned up slightly later than than you did previously you'd end up in an entirely different existence yeah, and I guess another one that's more common in films, I can only think of one book I've read that does this, is the Time Loop uh, book, which again, Groundhog Day is the famous example from films, but it does seem to be, I've seen so many different films that do it, and I always really enjoy the idea. But the only book I can remember that I've read 
that does that is the Eternal Return of Clara Hart by Louise Finch, which is a non sorry a young adult novel that came out last year, and uh, yeah, in that one, there's a the the main character the narrator who's a boy is, is trying to prevent the death of Clara Hart, which happens in every every repeat of that day in different ways, and he's trying to work out how to stop it happening. But it's also about toxic masculinity. Yeah, um, interesting. Yeah, I, I thought it was really inventive. Can you think of any time loop novels? Um, yes, there's The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. Oh, of course, yes, we did that, yeah. didn't we? Yes. Which, I mean, I found absolutely wonderful and I probably mm-hmm. would read it again now because I'm, I'm at the point where I've forgotten what happened so I could read it again because I read it in such a rush. I probably didn't pick up on as many things as I could have done. But um, that I just found brilliant because you're constantly going back in time and you're seeing things from a different character's perspective. And I, I think that idea of playing with perspective and seeing how differently the same different people see the same events is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, that was really good. A little gory for me, but I just really like it. I was just addicted. I just remember sitting up until like four o'clock in the morning. (laughs) So good. Yeah, yeah. And then another, I was thinking all these different types of time manipulation and non-linearity. Another one is, of course, the novel Told Backwards. Uh, I could only think of two examples. Uh, So The Night Watch by Sarah Waters is, I think, in three sections, Tobacco set during the Second World War. And as always with Sarah Waters, there's so, so many clever details that you only realise as you get further on that, that they're significant, etc. Uh, yeah, really uh, really accomplished. I do remember thinking at the time, I wish that there'd be more than three sections because it was really clever, but you it, it paid off you know, two or three times that I think she could have paid off many more times if she'd done you know six or seven layers or something. But... Uh, maybe that would have been too complicated to, to structure. Uh, and then I recently read The Good Liar by Nicholas Searle, that there is a main narrative to it that is told straightforwardly forwards, but then it jumps back to one of the two characters who's, who's quite old in the present day uh, and his life in different periods going further and further back. Uh, and you sort of learn how he is like he is because he's basically in the present he's basically a con man trying to steal the life savings of an old lady but you, you sort of gradually realize the developments that got him there oh. um so yeah i thought that at first i was like oh no can't we just tell the story straightforwardly but uh, it did did pay off eventually i'm trying to think of if i can think of any novels told backwards but nothing's coming to me oh actually um there is the long view by Elizabeth Jane Howard that sort of does that, where you mm. go, you start at the end of the relationship and the novel takes you all the way back to the beginning. And it's only by seeing the beginning of the relationship that you understand the situation that they're in at the end. Interesting. Yeah, I found it quite a frustrating read, actually, because I was reading it and thinking, why on earth is this woman staying with this man? This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever read. You know, there's absolutely no redeeming features of this person this relationship is doomed and then it was only when I got to the end of the book I was like oh my god it's all come together and now I want to go back to the beginning and read it all over again knowing now what I know yeah yeah I've something I see find often although right now the only example I can think of is Wise Children by Angela Carter but it happens time and again is a novel that starts with a final scene and then goes back to the beginning so it's it's only non-linear for that one moment Mm. Uh, of like here's how they ended up let's go back to the beginning and I always find it really annoying because for me that just removes 
it just feels so anticlimactic if you like we know how it ends now unless yeah. there's some really really clever reason for it but often it seems to me just to be a way of trying to g- generate some tension or to get some action going straight away yeah uh, if it's done cleverly and likewise children I actually didn't mind it but but it, so often it comes up and this just doesn't seem to me any need for it no it's just being a bit self-consciously clever I think sometimes yeah and and I guess we've covered various uh quite precise ways of playing of time but I think the most common one is where it just jumps back and forth a lot and it's not like a really clever conceit it's more just like and then this is what happened here and this is what happened here and this is what happened here and uh of course I've gone blank on any examples but it seems to me that all novels now seem to have to be told non-linearly or from lots of different perspectives. We did an episode on that, but it's, it seems to me quite rare now just to get a novel that is one narrator starting at the beginning and going to the end. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I think actually that's sometimes to the detriment of a good story because I think people are often telling a story that's really actually not particularly inspired, but by mucking about with the structure, they think mm-hmm. they're doing something interesting. It's like, well, you're not though. It's still a crap story. Um, and I think it's, um, yeah, it, it has become a bit of a trend. I mean, it's a bit like in the 19th century when everyone had to use a frame narrative and, you know, you had yes. 5,000 page letters being written to people and, and, and you know, oh, I'm also enclose a copy of my diary that you can. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and, you know, that was that was their way of kind of playing around with with structure and playing around with narrative voice and, and also plugging gaps in the story you know if you don't want to tell the story from a particular person's perspective or you don't want to have that person as a character but how can you get their story in there somehow oh I know I'll just chuck in their letters um and now it's like oh well how do I you know how do I get around the fact that you know this is just a conventional love story oh I know I'm gonna turn it into the time traveler's wife and and have bizarre and also slightly disturbing um encounters with um my lover when she's three years old or whatever i mean very odd mm-hmm. i mean that novel was so popular and i really liked it but yet it is, it is essentially yeah. I, I mean really it's not straightforwardly it. grooming but it's not far off is it no it's, like, it's funny how something that was published not that long ago that now you'd read it again and think this would be this would not be published now i don't think mm-hmm. yeah i remember there's a lot of backlash to the tv show a couple of years ago which was a straightforward adaptation of the book, as far as I could tell. But yeah, as you say, times have changed already. Mm. But yeah, has... other than... Oh, sorry, you keep going. No, no, I was just saying, time moves on, literally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ironically, for this episode. But um, yeah, I other than which way, I couldn't think of many novels that really did something very unusual with time from before the last, I don't know, 30 years. Um can you think of ones from some earlier in the century or previous centuries that have done that would do something very unusual with time? I mean, not really off the top of my head. No, I mean, I'm sure there must be some that we're just not aware of, but um, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I can't think. I mean, I guess if you're thinking about sort of time and time travel, I mean, there's. Um, there are books obviously to do with time travel and sort of speculative futures and what happens when people come back from the past and whatever and so forth. But I don't think time travel is, is that's yeah, the whole it's a bit different, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, I can't think of anything sort of majorly interesting structurally. 
I should probably mention, although I've not read it, uh, Time's Arrow by Martin Amos, I believe does something weird with time, but that's all I got to say about it. <laughs> we, we read Martin Amos, nobody anymore. Well, no. Oh, in fact, uh, if Wikipedia tells me it's another reverse chronology, so there you go, that's what happens. Um, this is amazing how Martin Amos has gone from being one of the great bright lights of modern literature to being someone that most people I know of wouldn't confess to reading. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and then obviously we, there are a million novels that have linear narratives. We, um, unless you want to talk about Emma a bit, then I don't think we have <laughs> to really specify them. But um, yeah, I think I, my heart does sink a little bit when I see that something is doing that jumping back and forth. If it's got a really clever thing, like a sliding doors type thing, then that I'm quite on board with. But if it's just, for no obvious reason, telling a novel jumping forward and back or, you know, forward and back between various different people. My heart does sink a bit because I think you're basically saying that you don't think this was interesting enough to tell in a straightforward way. That's what, I, I mean, that's probably unfair, but that's that's what I feel when I read it. I also think I'm going to have to really concentrate. I'm going to get confused. Uh, and sometimes it pays off, but I think that is more often true when it's the sort of book which is really doing it. For, that is sort of the purpose of, of the whole book is doing something interesting with time but yeah more often it is the ones that are just we've jumbled this up and we're just making life harder for you without any obvious payoff yeah agreed and yeah. I think, you know it's in order to kind of keep a, a reader interested and focused you've got to make life easy for them and i think sometimes gimmicky stuff like that it's like it actually takes me out of the story rather than pulls me in. Yeah, and yeah, it, I I think the older I get, the also the just the less tolerance I have for confusing narratives. I just have to make copious notes or something as I'm reading them. And if you're making notes as you're reading, then just to enjoy it. And obviously, if you're studying it, that's fine. But if you're just trying to read a book to enjoy it, it should be easy to read in the sense of easy to follow. I mean, you know, those of us who've studied English, we have had enough of, of reading. Yeah. <laughs> we just want to be able to read without making notes. So possibly unsurprisingly, I am therefore landing on linear narratives as a preference. I just I just love the classic good, well-told novel, which starts at the beginning and goes to the end and relies on, you know, psychological acuity or interesting plot or beautiful writing, any of those things to hold my interest rather than put together this jigsaw puzzle. Oh, so, I mean, I don't mind a, lin a non-linear narrative and I quite enjoy them when they work within the context of the story. Like, for example, Life After Life for me is a work of genius. Um, but on the whole, I probably, if I were to pick up a book, I, you know, I would always go with a linear narrative. There we so, go. We are not Unlike time when we were pitted against each other, I know. Oh, I meant to feedback on that. So we we heard back from three people who'd read both books um, about who they agreed with. Um, you did win. <laughs> Unsurprising. Unsurprising. But it was two. It was two one. So you didn't get a complete victory. There was yeah. So uh, I can't remember all the people's names. I'm afraid, so I won't say them. But uh, yeah, one person strongly agreed with me, and two people strongly agreed with you. But everyone enjoyed hearing us squabble about it. <laughs> Yes. Well, I mean, I'm glad that the world came down on, on the side of reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
What was quite funny is I put on Instagram when I was saying that this episode is coming out that it's the most we've ever disagreed. And I got a couple of people replying saying, more than Patricia Brent Spinster and more than Oh the Brave Music. It's like, well, it's interesting that people remember the ones where we really disagree. But I think it's the first example of you really liking a book and me really disliking it. It's usually the other way around. Yeah. If we if we disagree. Oh, <laughs> there we go. I don't like self-writing. I mean... <sighs> <laughs> well over that in my defense it should be a better book um Ooh. my <laughs> my coffee is actually it's not gone to a charity shop yet it's in a pile waiting to go to a charity shop i mean i can't even hear this <laughs> uh well someone else will love it i'm sure so my my loss is someone else's gain true true and uh as a little spoiler for the second half one of these books is going to a charity shop as well but I won't say which yet. Oh, wow. Um, switch. Um, we didn't get a question for the middle this time, but if anyone in the future wants recommendations or is a little question for us that wouldn't cover a, a whole section, but it's good for the section, do get in touch at torbooks at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. But in the second half, we are doing two books from Rebecca's... Rebecca's? <laughs> Rachel, just forgot your name mid-podcast. <laughs> what, what? I don't know what it is. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, Rachel's TBR pile, all of the sort of seven books that were on it, we picked two that the closest to having something in common. Let's see how much they do have in common. Um, would you like to introduce us to Winter in the Air or to A World of Love? Um, I'll do A Winter is in the Air because, no, sorry, World of Love because I can't do short stories. It's too complicated for me. Well, I'll go for it then. Okay, so A World of Love is a set in, um, I guess, 1950s, 60s, um, Ireland, 50s Ireland. Um, and it tells the story of, um, I can't remember anyone's names, Antonio? Um, yep. Yes. Yeah. Bizarre scenario. So basically, her cousin um, owns a stately home in Ireland. Well, it's not really a stately home, is it? It's more of a large house. And yeah. During the war, he becomes engaged to um, Lilia, who is a sort of not particularly high-class girl, um, but she's very beautiful. And Antonia sort of takes her under her wing because she's very close to her cousin, and then her cousin gets killed. This is, is not spoilers. This all happens at the beginning. And she feels guilty that she has inherited... She's the person who's inherited the house. She feels guilty because she feels... It should belong to Lilia because Lilia would have been married to Guy had there been time, it's her cousin. And so she gives Lilia this house to live in, but on the condition that she marries this other random guy who's also loosely related <laughs> them. So Lilia ends up married to Fred, uh, Antonia's insistence living in Ireland. Fast forward 20 odd years and we, Antonia often goes to stay and we're there during a summer when Antonia is there and also... Um, Lydia and Frank's eldest daughter, Jane, is back home, who also happens to be ravishingly beautiful, as, as women often are in 1950s novels. <laughs> I, uh, stuff happens. Letters are found in the attic. That's the kind mm. of... the, the, the crux. The crux of the story. Jane comes across letters in the attic, and they it's not clear who they're... They're written by Guy, who was her mother's ex-fiancé well dead fiancé um but it's not clear whether they were actually written to Lilia or not 
And that's the story. Yes, thank you. And then Winter in the Air was published in 1955. It is a, it's just been reprinted by Faber, but it was originally uh, a collection that was published together. It's not like a best of or something. Uh, as you say, it's very hard to describe the plot of, I know, 15 different stories or whatever, but, um, uh, and I'm sure we'll pick out individual ones, but they're mostly about middle-class women uh, and the, their trials, I suppose. There's, well, there's quite a few men in there, but uh, it's often quite... It's a mix of like quite small moments in people's lives and then quite dramatic moments in people's lives, like someone getting murdered or someone running away to elope or yeah. Uh, yeah. A real mix of different things. And um, I, I don't really know. I can't really do a plot outline any more than that. We'll just have to come on and talk about them. Yeah. But well, let's start there. In fact, uh, Silver Towns Warner, uh, someone who we've covered, we did Lolly Willows a long time ago. She is well known for both novels and short stories, better known for short stories in America because she was mostly published in the New Yorker. And for yeah. a long time, it was a lot easier to find secondhand copies of her short story collections in America than it has been here. Uh, and it, yeah, I found this quite uh, varied collection in some ways. Some of the stories I really loved and others a bit less, but um the one, if I just pick up my, maybe I'll say which was my favourite and we can come on to others later, but my favourite was at the Trafalgar Bakery, which is the one about a woman eloping and she's mm-hmm. meeting up with um, with her fiancé, I guess, in this bakery. And that's essentially the whole plot. She's just waiting there. Will he turn up? Uh, she, Her mum thinks she's gone to town to buy, uh, I think it's buttons to match old buttons they've got for um, some mending. Uh, and... I think what I really liked about this one, A, is that there's an amazing cat in it. Sylvia Tanzamorna always writes cats really well, both in her her letters and diaries. She always wrote about her and cats really well. But also this cat, I loved him. And she's very she's very observant and not at all fey about cats. Uh, and then, yeah, I liked the, the atmosphere of the bakery, the feeling of waiting, the tension, the awkwardness. Uh, and I think that's when she's at her best, when it's a sort of slice of life. It's not necessarily an everyday life. It, it is a significant moment in this in this young woman's life. But it uh, but there isn't big denouement, big plot. It is just what happens during this tense, awkward half hour. Um, yeah, and I really liked that. Do you did you have if you could you, could you pick a favorite from the collection? Um, I think I actually liked. I'm just flicking through because. Um, I think my my favourite was actually Winter in the Air, the first one. I really enjoyed mm. the description of um it's about a woman who's he's just divorced her husband and is moving from a large house in the countryside into a flat um in London. And I really enjoyed that depiction of she's not she's unha- she's not happy about the fact that she's divorced, but at the same time she's not happy and she the description of of her having this space that's her own after years of having had to subsume herself within the home of her husband and everything else, I just found really interesting and an interesting take on the story. It wasn't where I was expecting it to go. Mm-hmm. All of the the stories actually kind of you you start reading. I started reading them and had in my mind where what I thought the story was going to be about or what I thought was going to happen. I thought, oh, okay, the, the character's like this or I, I think it's going to be like this. And it would always go off on a direction that I, I hadn't anticipated. Um, and sometimes that that was 
to interesting effect and sometimes not so much. I, I do think it's quite a mixed collection in terms of its quality and something I will say and and I noticed I I read the ones that were published by Persephone the wartime stories hmm. uh, and I felt much the same about those is that she doesn't know how to finish they always all of her stories peter out yeah and it's um in other collections I found that actually really powerful i like that it just sort of slips back into reality and it's not this big twist moment or this big denouement in the way that many short story writers do have a big sort of moment and i like that naturalism in them but it does depend what has come before it of course it, it really has to suit the story and sometimes i think it really works and then yeah sometimes petering out is is anticlimactic rather than deliberately poignant or yeah yeah I mean often I was most of these stories I sort of got to the end and thought I'm not really sure what the point of that was or what she was trying to say interesting yes I I've read I think all her short stories now or at least many of them uh and she I think she's at the sort of spectrum of precision I hope this makes sense but she, she has stories that are really vague and then stories that I think are too plot driven for her style so there's some in here where, for example, I really liked Under New Management about uh, an old woman being sort of sort of uh, cornered out by the um, brusque and slightly offensive young ma- young son of the people who run the boarding house she lives in. Mm. Uh, and I think it generally worked really well, except it told us at the beginning that there was a murder case and then there was this murder case later on. And I found that it just didn't really work with the tone. And sometimes she does go for like a twist ending or something. And I don't think it really works with her style of writing. And then sometimes you get to the end and think, I don't even know what that was about. And I think the sweet spot where I think she's absolutely brilliant and it happens in some of these and, in, and I think more in other collections is where it, there is a specificity to it, but it's not a like dun, dun, dun plot. Here's like, here's the start. Here's the exciting thing that happens. Here's a twist, which I don't think she does very well. And I don't know if this makes sense, but yeah, I really like the ones where there is a slice of life, there is a specificity to it, and you know exactly where you are, but it doesn't need that big denouement. It is just, this is a person's life. Yes, I think when she's very good at describing domestic detail and the kind of little fussinesses and quirkinesses of people's Mm, characters. Um, which I do really enjoy. She's she's got a real eye for detail, and she captures people brilliantly. And her her ability to capture people's voices and their speech patterns and the idiosyncrasies of of the words that they use and things is is very good. She's a very very good observer of of people. I really enjoyed that. But all of the stories, I just thought all of these stories have got brilliant characters and really interesting scenarios. But they're not short stories. These are these are all of them could have been novels. And I felt that there was too little in the actual story for me. To I wasn't I didn't find the story compelling. I just found them incomplete little scraps of something. I, I just feel like I'd read something rounded. Do you know what I mean? I know what you mean. Yeah, I don't think I found the same for a lot of them, but I do see what you mean. And whilst we're talking, in fact, about um, character domain, if I just read it's a slightly long section, but from a prince yeah. priestess of Delphi that I wrote down, that I think does that sort of dry humor and character observation um it's a couple of paragraphs but uh it says with wrong-headed zeal the police had arrested a tramp so ignorant of the sanctuary laws of the church of england that it was not until the case was being tried and the noose hanging over him that the witness his alibi could be reduced in court 
the tramp had persisted in saying that on the night of the murder, he helped a gentleman to push his car out of a ditch some hundred miles away from where the murder was committed, and that the gentleman wore old-fashioned boots with buttons. The gentleman was, in fact, a gated dean, a humane and scholarly man, who, after inattentively reading about the case in the Times and deploring the spread of violence, happened to see the tramp's photograph in a chief newspaper which the fishmonger was wrapping around a purchase of shrimps for Melusine, the deanery cat. Uh, I love that, because I mean, those characters aren't important in the novel, in the story. They don't come up again. But it's so Warner-esque to go down to the detail of the, the newspaper is being wrapped around shrimps for this cat that we know the name of, even though we don't need to know it. And I think she, I like her when she's having those slight, slightly quirky, but not, not surreal or anything, just slightly odd, very personal details about people, even if they're in passing. And I think that's her strength, is giving you this whole persona through a detail which yeah as you say doesn't always hang together with what's happening in the rest of the story but i think probably most of these for me they they did they did work for me interesting yeah we'll come back to her but let's talk about bowen um and uh the characters here i don't know i don't know i um i i always have um, a sort of mixed time with Bowen depending on what mood I'm in and I guess depending on the novel so I've loved some of them and I started by really enjoying this one and I think what I really liked about this one throughout was the dialogue she was very good at quite spiky witty dialogue that um, exposed the tensions between different characters uh, in quite a realistic and funny way but the bits between dialogue I didn't really know or care what was happening I mean, I just had no clue what the what was going on, really. I mean, there was literally no point. The thing is with Elizabeth Bowen is that she's a brilliant writer and um, in terms of she's a brilliant uh, manipulator of the English language. And something that annoyed me and does annoy me about her writing intensely is that she overwrites. Mm. So every sentence is, is just too much. It's like, all right, Elizabeth, we get it. You know, you've got a <laughs> You're really good at this. But at the end of the day, you need to understand where to draw a line. I actually used to use a passage from one of her novels as a, as a tool to teach creative writing, to teach children how sometimes too much is too much, you know. Um, okay. Because I used to say to them, what is actually happening in this sentence? And often they get to the end and they wouldn't know. And I'm like, exactly. There are too many words in this sentence to the point where when you get to the end, you're just drowning. And you can't actually cut through it to the sense of what it is that she's trying to say. And she also has a maddening habit in this book in particular of starting sentences with adverbs. Um, mm. And, you know, quickly she went to the whatever. It's like, just start with the, you know, why are you starting? It's like you're starting with the second clause of the sentence all the time. It just really annoys me. Um, and... Yes, but as that aside, it was just like, okay, so basically the scenario is this. And we're talking about this is a 250-page book here. The scenario is a girl has found some letters upstairs <laughs> on, like, page two. And by page 250, 
we still don't know who these letters are to and we don't understand why everyone cares about them <laughs> yeah i got to agree i think i thought i'd written down an example but i can't find it now that a sentence that i just read over and over again me like i just don't know what this sentence means yeah. even though i've tried again and again and quite often i get to the end of a paragraph and think i've i've sort of enjoyed the flow of words but I I could not piece together what it's meant what's meant to have happened, which was probably nothing because nothing happened yeah. except for that enormous amount of backstory, as you explained earlier, that takes up the first sort of twenty pages of explaining how we've got to this situation, mm. which could have been quite an interesting novel in itself about how all of these things happened if we'd seen the fiance dying and the next steps and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But instead, it's just so sort of the backdrop for someone very slowly finding some letters. <laughs> Yeah, and the whole yeah. thing's sort of bizarre in that. So Antonia has this. There, there's this sort of almost Banquo's ghost scene at, mm-hmm. at, at at a party where Guy is sort of there and he's not there, and it's like why? But we don't. The thing is, we as readers have never met this person, and we have no connection with him, so we don't care that he's dead, or we don't really care about his impact on other people. We can't sort of relate to everybody's obsession with him, and I thought that was a real flaw in the novel if you're mm. going to write a novel where the, one of the main characters is essentially a ghost we we need to have a sense of who this person was and why he mattered so much to these people but the thing is like him and Lilia were only married for two minutes and barely knew each other when they did get married so there is a sense that actually probably if he had stayed alive that would have all fallen apart anyway I mean it seemed to me that there was an implication that him and Antonia had been lovers yeah yeah and she's certainly very jealous of their connection i thought i thought antonia was an interesting character with that sort of that envy was also feeling superior uh and the way that she clearly both despised and was jealous of um lilia i thought was handled quite interestingly but also you know wanted wanted to see her daughter um i don't know have some sort of opportunities yeah it was, she was an interesting complex character i felt I, I think she was the only interesting character for me um there were any number of posh neighbors who i didn't really manage to d- disentangle there's that party that jane goes to and she yeah, talks to various very pointless yeah, yeah. Why we no idea what was going on or, or yeah. why we were there yeah <laughs> um yeah i i found that quite frustrating yeah i mean the I, I was really disappointed actually because I've I've really loved a lot of Elizabeth Bowen's other novels. Um I mean this one was sort of peak Bowen in terms of complete inability to understand what on earth was going on. And also that she's she really is a kind of exemplar of those sorts of country house novels where you've got lots of posh people who never tell anyone never tell anyone what they actually mean so all of their all of their vocabulary like their conversations are very elliptical and elusive and it's like you know mm-hmm. what, what, I'm saying this but actually I mean this and and it's just like for goodness sake just you know say what you feel um and sometimes that can be really effective but in this time I guess I found both what they were saying and what they were concealing didn't make any sense it yeah. just wasn't clear yeah. and there wasn't enough there wasn't enough motivation or plot really to sustain a novel of this length like I didn't really feel that that Elizabeth Bowen had sufficient story here I was like what is the point of this book what is the story it sounds to me like it, I mean, it was very 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 weak in terms of 
anybody's kind of inc- the inciting incident of the letters that don't go anywhere. It's like none of this is going anywhere. I don't yeah. understand why we're here or what we're doing or why we care about these characters or like what journey we've been on from the beginning to the end because no- nothing changes. Interestingly, in the Winter in the Air, there are two stories that are both about past loves uh, that I thought were more successful. So there's Hee Haw, a weird title for mm. a story about a woman going back to a place where she had had a romantic relationship with a man that she now doesn't now looks back on that time very unhappily and then meets someone who remembers the man that she was in love with. And I thought that that was such a good um, take on what external perspectives versus internal, like because he's telling what he remembers and she's basically thinking, yes, factually those things are all true, but the, the interpretation you're putting on it is not at all what I experienced. And then similarly, Edinburgh is about someone going to a little town with her current conference husband or partner of some sort mm. and she's remembering a love affair that happened there uh, in her youth or did it so and I, I thought those are both really interesting plays on memory and how in quite a short space of text how the present and the past collide in a way that that was the sort of central theme in a world of love I thought more successful in those two stories than in a world of love Yes, I really enjoyed that story about um, I, the Edinburgh story because I was like, oh, where's this going? And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Um, and yes, I think actually, interestingly enough, I think A World of Love probably would have worked quite well as a short story. Oh, there you go. So, <laughs> several times I wanted to have turned out into novels yeah. and Elizabeth yeah. should have made her short story. <laughs> I mean, um, it's a shame, really, because, I mean, there's there's elements of something really brilliant in there and, and something really compelling and interesting. You know, there's this kind of odd relationship between these two women, the sort of the jealousy there and the, the um, both of them longing after this kind of mythological died-too-young person who probably wasn't as magnificent as anyone makes him out to be. Um, but, you know, a, a tragic death turns lots of people into you know, heroes that they never were. And you've also got this girl on the burgeoning on adulthood who's grown up in this entirely dysfunctional home and what will that look like for her? And you also got like the weird little sister who's, you know, totally um, messed up, it seems. Um, <laughs> and slightly kind of um, a little bit of a, a kind of psychopath child it seemed mm, yeah, yeah. And I was like you know she's she's up to no good she's the kind of kid who, who'd set the house on fire and watch it burn you know so um there was lots of really interesting elements and I just thought with an actual story this could have gone down a much more interesting and more fulfilling route but in the end we've just got lots of amazing characters with no story to tell well it yeah. might be one amazing character, but yeah. And because I, I think you know, there are so many great books and stories where there's a character who's not present who is very dominant. You know, Rebecca yeah. is obviously a great example. But, and there's quite a lot of the stories in Winter in the Air. In fact, there's characters who aren't there who I think are really um, powerful by their absence. You really could tell about them. But as you said, I, I found Guy just such a flimsy character. Like he's got this great mm-hmm. reputation but and he's had this effect on people, but I didn't feel anything about him. Yeah. And he just, yeah, he seemed very weakly drawn, which is quite, yeah, quite odd that he ha- he's both clearly had this impact on all these people, but he just is a complete cipher. And I don't think intentionally, I don't think he's meant to be 
um, powerful by by you not knowing anything about him. I think it's it is very meant to create this really interesting character that just doesn't really come alive. I mean, he is dead, but he still doesn't come alive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, it's interesting because I think, you know, I always find that sort of interesting, having those kind of ghost-like characters, and I think they can be really powerful. But when you've made a choice not to kind of flesh them out at all, I just think it's just an odd, it's just an odd, really odd concept for a book, really. Yeah, I don't know what the point of it was. And it was just, it was quite, well, I thought it might be really early when I started it, but it is you know, sort of mid-career. Mm. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to say about any of the stories in Winter in the Air? Um, I really liked the one, I can't remember the name of it, but the guy who um, who goes, his house burns down and he goes and lives in the bungalow. Um, yeah, if you uh, is that a passing weakness? Is that that one? Can't remember the name of it, but I really I enjoyed that one a lot, and I don't know why. I just found it sort of, and and the the devoted secretary who'd been with him for a long time. But again, I was sort of expecting it to go down a sinister. I expected and wanted it to go down a sinister angle, and it never did. <laughs> I thought, oh, the secretary's going to do something, or, um, and no, she didn't. I think that's one. That, yeah, I like that one again. I think possibly for, I liked it for that reason because it doesn't have this big twist. Because there's things like Evan about a young man and a and an older woman meeting on a train that I really enjoyed until there was a bit at the end where it's like, oh, maybe we should run away together. It's like, what? You've only spoken to each other for about five minutes, <laughs> uh, and I thought that didn't work. But um, yeah, I think I like her best when there isn't this big decisive moment at the end. So the ones that did. Um, the ones that did peter out are probably my favorites oh well see the thing is petering mm-hmm. out doesn't work for me i just was like and what was the point of that then at the end of every one i've kind of <laughs> I feel like with all of her stories i read them and i think oh, well that was nice but i don't really know what the point was and maybe that's maybe i'm just too dense to get them <laughs> well it's just you're looking for something different to what she does i guess because she I, yeah i think her strength is the sort of psychological moment but and then moves on which I yeah, if you're looking for something a bit a bit sort of firmer and stronger in a story, it's just not there. Yeah, it really isn't. But there we are. But very intriguing little little stories, and I will say this much: the new Faber and Faber edition is very pretty, lovely cover, lovely cover. Whereas I'm reading my Faber Finds edition that I bought in 2011 and only just read, so I could have been ahead of the curve of everyone reading it. Because I mean, the copy I've got is quite ugly, and I paid a fortune for it. So if only I'd waited, I would have been able to get um, <laughs> a much prettier, much cheaper edition. But here we are. Uh, if people did enjoy it or have read it and is looking for others it's not as easy to track down but my favorite collection of hers is a swan on an autumn river which is published in america as a stranger with a bag um those are the it's got her most famous short story in called a love match which is about brother sister incest but in a quite a sweet way discussed but um i think it's a (laughs) it's yeah i think Maybe because it's one of the first collections of hers I read, but uh, I think it was the strongest that I've read. But this, this is probably up there. Like I, it's maybe my third or fourth favorite collection of hers. So I, I'm interested as to why Faber Finds chose, sorry, Faber chose this one rather than any others. But um, yeah, I'm not sure. But uh, I think she is, yeah, at her best. I think she's up there with some of the all-time great short story writers. But you don't always get her best. 
Yeah. So what? It, well, it's very obvious that I'm going to choose Winter in the Air because I didn't like A World of Love at all. But I'm less sure what you're going to choose. Yeah, it's a bit of a tricky one for me, to be honest, because I didn't really like either of them. But I think um, on balance, I think there was more to enjoy in a winter and winter in the air than there was World of Love. And it, it really does pay me to say this because I do think that Elizabeth Bowen is, is a wonderful writer. And I would say for people who are listening and who haven't read any Elizabeth Bowen, don't let that put you off because her yeah. early novels are certainly very, very good. And I would say that probably To the North is one of my favourite novels. So. And we did an episode on that a while ago, if you, or a long time ago, if you want to hear exactly why we both liked it uh, much more than this. And you know, it's supposed to show every writer can have a duff, duff, duff book. Yeah. So, you know, even the greatest, just like Jane Austen has Sense and Sensibility. So, you know. <laughs> Which is my favourite of her books. As well, you know. Um, <laughs> well, there you go. We are in agreement today, albeit uh, not the most enthusiastic agreement. Uh, in the next episode, we will be doing um, two authors we have done before, although not for a little bit. Uh, so Quartet in Autumn by Barbara Pym and Journal of a Solitude by May Sarton. And we hope you can join us then. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.